The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. Well, we are, this is the third part of our series on 2 Timothy called Life Together. And we're really focused on looking at the local church uh, during this time when people are scattered, when community is complicated. We are looking at what does it mean to be a part of the local church? How do we live in this community? And this letter, uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, is full of addressing that question. What does it mean to live as, as the local church? How do we do this well? How do we... Uh, how do we pursue health, and we're really getting into these chapters, chapter two and chapter three, we're getting into the heart of Paul's writing to Timothy of the purpose of why he's writing. Timothy is growing into the man that God has called him to be, and he's growing into his calling as a pastor, and Paul is wanting for him to grow well, and so... That's what he's getting into here, and it's very practical. We have to remember that 2 Timothy is a personal letter, uh, so Paul is writing to an individual, uh, but then this letter applies to all of us. Um, but one of the things that we're going we're gonna to unpack today is really the next two weeks are kind of a tandem. Uh, in fact, if it helps, it helps me to think of these, this week and next week as, as kind of two parts of the same message. Uh, because today we're focusing on con- uh, opposing what tears down and then next week contending for what builds up. And I much prefer the 
contending for what builds up part of uh, this two-part sermon, and yet it's important for us to look at what Paul has to say to Timothy and what's happening in Timothy's church that is, that is um, having a caustic effect on the health of that congregation. Here's the thing about the church that you have to know. Churches are made up of people, right? We're made up of people. And people, we just, we, everybody, nobody has a simple story, everybody has a unique story, we all come from somewhere, and we all have ways of relating, we all have patterns of behavior, we have ways of thinking, and all of those things come into the dynamic of a community of faith that's happening in real time on the ground, a part of a local church. So some of you in this room have been a part of this local church since we started. You know, you've, you've been a part of here since the first Sunday. Some of you have started coming as a part of this congregation post-COVID. Welcome, glad you're here. Uh, some of you have not been here in a while. Uh, this is your first Sunday back meeting in person since all of that happened. So glad to have you back in the room. Some of you are still watching via live stream for, for reasons that, that are keeping you and preventing you from gathering together in person. We miss you. Um, but a local church ends up being a combination of the people who are there and all of their histories and their pasts and their talents and their gifts and their passions and their joys and their sorrows and all those things get thrown into the mix and it's part of the beauty of the local church because it's just a, it's a mess in so many ways and yet it's just this entity that the Lord has used in such profoundly redemptive ways uh, throughout time. But Paul here is, is talking to Timothy, and he's talking to Timothy about the church that he is leading, the community that he is shepherding. And Paul is aware of people and patterns of behavior in that church that are sucking the life out of Timothy's congregation. And it's important for us to look at this because this thing continues to happen. If you've been a part of the church for any amount of time, there have been difficult seasons for you uh, in the church. You might be in one right now. But Paul is, is talking about this, and he gets really practical and pragmatic in these verses. Because what he's doing is he's, is he's telling uh, Timothy, he's given Timothy some help, because Timothy doesn't just need help knowing how to respond to the things that are happening in his church, but he also needs help identifying the negative forces that are at work in the church that he's leading. And so Paul is writing this letter knowing that these may be his last words to Timothy. Second Timothy is one of Paul's last letters that he writes. And so he writes this letter with strength and he writes it with clarity so that Timothy and then also so that we might oppose what tears down and contend for what builds up in the context of the church on earth. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna focus on naming some of those things that appear in the text that tear down, that we would oppose what tears down. And we run a risk whenever we do this, whenever we start pointing out problems, and the risk that we run is that it can be much easier sometimes to see these problems in the lives of other people, uh, but not in ourselves. And so my prayer for us as we just get into this is that we would have humility, that the Lord would give us humility 
to see these things in ourselves before we see them in others. So is that a fair deal? Can we do that? Lord, give us humility. I'm gonna pray actually right now that the Lord would do that. Father, we ask that you would give us a sensitivity to your spirit's leading as we work through these, uh, these verses and the things that are said here. Father, would you give us just a willingness to, um, to see our own lives laid bare by the truth of your word. Uh, we, we bow in your presence and we ask that your word would be our rule and that your spirit would be our teacher and that your greater glory would be our supreme concern. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so with humility leading us, I'm gonna name four of the broad problems that Paul identifies here in chapters two and in chapters three of 2 Timothy. And I'm gonna list them and then we'll unpack them. Uh, these are the things that tear down the church as, as Paul is writing this. First, equating Christianity with an untroubled life. Equating Christianity with an untroubled life has a destructive impact on a local community. Second, quarreling over words. Third, prizing inventiveness over truth. And then last, the glorification of self. So we'll just get into them. Paul does not want Timothy to be disillusioned. In verses 1 through 13, which we didn't read, they're actually the verses right before uh, the passage that Eric read for us, um, they deal a lot with the difficulty and the struggle of the Christian life. And so equating Christianity with an untroubled life has this destructive effect. It tears down, and Paul doesn't want Timothy to be disillusioned about the struggles that come from following Christ, because Christ himself said, if you come after me, the world will hate you and disown you. He said, in this world you will have trouble. Christ said some strong things about what it means to follow him, right? So Paul doesn't want Timothy to be disillusioned that things get difficult. Um, in fact, he opens with three analogies for the Christian life in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2. He describes the Christian life like that of a soldier, that of an athlete, and that of a farmer. And I'm not going to unpack each of them individually, but what I do want to just observe is that when Paul is, is describing the Christian life as being similar to the life of a soldier, the life of an athlete, the life of a farmer. What he's saying is these, these, are, these, are, are, these each require diligence and they carry their share of hardship. It's a part of the role is that there's difficulty here. There's, there's struggle. Each of them requires uh, difficulty. You have, to, you, have to, you have to embrace the role that you're in. You have to show up for it. You have to train. You have to cultivate there are certain things that happen that are difficult, that are beyond your control, that can stop you, that can, that can hurt you. And the church has struggled with this truth that, that life is, is difficult. Christians struggle with this. We, we think that, that, it's, that it's a little quid pro quo, that if, that if I put my faith in Jesus, the least he can do is uncomplicate my life for me, right? But, but that's just not how it goes. And when we think about it that way and when we insist on that or when, when our own hearts kind of bow up when things get difficult and we look at the Lord and we say, this isn't fair that I'm going through something that's hard right now, what we can end up doing is we can end up taking that out on the people around us in the church. 
And so when we equate, equate Christianity with the absence of struggle, what we're going to end up doing when we do struggle is we're going to turn on one another. We're going to blame each other for being responsible for, for why things aren't going the way that I want them to. But Christ, when he calls us to follow him, what does he say? He says, take up your cross and follow me. Now, we've, we've kind of whitewashed the, the image of, of a cross into a... Into a uh, a symbol and, and a piece of jewelry in, in some ways. But for, for Jesus' initial hearers, they knew what a cross was. A cross is an instrument of death, right? And when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's telling us this life is a self-emptying life. It's a life where you don't get to die on the hill of demanding your right to yourself. And so he says, take up your cross and follow me. And that means hardships are going to come in this life. Hardships are going to come. They come. Sometimes following Christ means going to prison. Paul here is writing this letter from prison. And he's, and he's, and he's praying that, that Timothy would live with his eyes open about the struggles that are inherent with being a part of living as a believer in this world. When we carry into the local context of the church, when we carry into our relationship with the community of faith, the body of Christ, this idea that because I'm a Christian, my life is supposed to go easier, when life gets hard, we will either turn on one another or we will withdraw from one another from shame. And we can't do that. So we have to oppose that idea, that idea that Christianity is an untroubled life because part of the reason the church exists is to come alongside one another when we're suffering and when we're hurting. Second is there's this idea of quarreling over words. Now, I love how Paul gets at this because um, Paul names names in this letter of false teachers and so he gets into false doctrine, but before he does that, he preambles a little bit with a warning about being quarrelsome in general, which is a word to everybody, before he gets into the specifics of people who are actually causing trouble. And so Paul deals with this here in verses 14 to 17, and there's this problem of false teaching. To get there, he bookends it with this caution about quarreling over words, because there's so much power in the tongue. We have so much power with our words, power to hurt, power to build up. But I think one of the things that's the image here in this passage is he's saying with, with, your, with, quarrel, with a quarrelsome nature, with your words, what you can do is it's not just tear somebody down, but you can just wear them down, right? Quarrelsome people can just grind you down. And we see that happen, right? We see that happen all the time. So I have to ask the question, do you love quarreling? If you don't know if you love quarreling or not, your Facebook page might tell you. Um, you know, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the most up-to-date accounts of, of how you behave in your interactions with people when there's, no, uh, when there's not much of a direct relational cost. And so do you, do you delight in that? Um, do you love to quarrel? You say, well, I love to debate. Okay, but are we not now quarreling over words? Like, is, is it possible that maybe what you really love is just arguing, 
And, 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 and the reason you love arguing is because you have a position that you feel is righteous and you feel like the people who don't have the position um, need to be worn down, need to be put in their place, need to hear from you on where they're mistaken. Is that you? Before he names specific quarrels, Paul touches on this issue of just being quarrelsome. And what he says is that, is, is that it cultivates a culture of uh, dishonesty. You want a culture of honesty in the church, but being quarrelsome can often lead to a culture of dishonesty because what we end up prizing more is winning the argument rather than loving a neighbor. And scripture says if, if you are contending for being right, but you don't love the person you're contending against, then you're just making noise. You're a clanging symbol, right? So those who love to quarrel, those who love debating, will often find themselves in the murky water of dishonesty, fighting more to win their point than to get at the truth. Some quarrels begin over misunderstandings in which we should seek Clarification. Some quarrels begin over lies. Uh, some people come into these quarrels or these debates unclear on the facts, unwilling to admit they don't have enough information uh, to make honest judgments. Some just enter because they, they love to fight, just love to fight. I've been around people who are like, you can't get any, unless you fight, you can't get anything done. And I, I, that's exhausting, right? It's, it's an exhausting way to live relationally. It's exhausting. But sometimes the reason we're in the fight, the reason we're quarreling is just, is because if you boil it down, it's just personal malice. You just have malice toward people who aren't like you, people who disagree with you, people on the other side of the argument. What is it? Can you see this in you? Because what Paul is saying is, is this quality of being quarrelsome, it's like a gangrene. That's the language that he used. That's the images he used. And gangrene, it's like a necrotic infection that slowly eats away at healthy tissue until life is systematically consumed. And this happens in churches. It can. You've probably seen it happen if you've been around the church for any amount of time. And what Paul is saying to Timothy and what he's telling Timothy to tell his church is he's saying, don't snipe at each other. Don't take shots at each other. You don't need to do that. Scripture gives you a model for confrontation if you are at odds with somebody. Matthew 18 tells you you go directly to them and you talk and you seek reconciliation. You're not trying to win a point. You're trying to win reconciliation, which means you have to come in humility. Paul says, tell your people not to snipe because it's going to ruin unity. You're going to start to find, you're going to start to insist that your unity needs to be found in things other than your need for Christ and his work on your behalf. And he, and he warns them. He says, there, there are many among you who won't know what to do when this happens. They won't know what to do. They won't know who to trust. They won't know how to follow the debate and you'll ruin the hearer. That's the language he uses in verse 14. You'll ruin the hearer. You'll upset their faith. And that should matter to us. Now, the argument is, yeah, but okay, what if we're quarreling over doctrine? Shouldn't we contend for doctrinal truth? Listen, yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's 2 Timothy. That's what this book is about, is contending for doctrinal truth. Paul was not one to avoid arguing for doctrinal truth. I mean, read Romans. Paul, Paul did not 
care if he offended people with his words, right? And he says some things that are offensive in the ears of the world, many things that are offensive in the ears of the world. He didn't care about that. He didn't, he, he didn't, he, he was all about doctrinal truth. Sound doctrine is essential. I'm deeply committed to sound doctrine. I pray that we would all be committed to sound doctrine. But how we engage people with those truths requires love and it requires care and it requires wisdom. And there are pitfalls when we're fighting for theological truth, when we're contending for theological truth, where when we fall into these pitfalls, pitfalls, we're we're, we're doing it wrong. (laughs) I'll name three of them. One pitfall in theological debate is when we ascribe motives to the other side without actually directly engaging representatives of those viewpoints. And we need to learn better than to do it this way. And it happens, right? It's, it's a straw man argument. You see, you see the other side as a caricature. And you say, anybody who would align with that point of view, that political party, that uh, pick, your, pick your cultural issue right now, anybody who would align with that has got to be just a thoughtless, heartless monster, right? We can do that. We can get there quick. And so we can ascribe motive to the other side as though it's any fool can see that they're just wrong. It's us versus them. We need to do better. We need to listen. The second, and I think this was important for us to always hear, is a pitfall of theological debate is to presume that our point of view is incapable of error. An anecdote. I've preached on 2 Timothy three times in my life as a pastor. And one time was back in the early 2000s, probably about 2006. And I went back in preparing the sermon and reviewed my notes from then. Uh, That pastor said some things I don't agree with. (laughs) And he said some things in a way that personally I thought, it's kind of rough. And then other things that I thought, that's kind of soft, right? You right now believe some things that if the Lord gives you another 20 years on this planet, you will look back and say, I was really dug in on that? I just don't, I don't, I can't believe I thought that. You believe things that are wrong. I believe things that are wrong. We do. And that's part of the journey of this life is we discover error over time and we have to do that with humility. There has to be humility in order for us to be even receptive to that. And don't hear me say there's no such thing as truth when I say that. There is. There's doctrine. Doctrine is the bedrock on which we stand. What I'm saying is it's very possible and likely that our point of view has error in it and we need to learn. The third pitfall of theological debate comes when we judge another person's faith or intelligence based on what church they attend, what books they read, what culture they come from, how they vote, how they educate their children. We can end up just dismissing entire swaths of people as unworthy of our time or to be taken seriously, and they're people that we're going to spend eternity with because of the finished work of Christ on all of our behalves. 
So we have to be people of conviction. We have to be. But if we have Christ in common, we need to examine the divisiveness of our own hearts and our own words when we debate, lest the church become a place where we just easily dismiss each other over our differences, missing the opportunity to learn from one another through honest and winsome community. Which leads to the third point, prizing inventiveness over truth. And we see this in verses 17 through 19. Paul does address a heresy and the promoters of that heresy, and he addresses it by, and he addresses them by name, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are people who are claiming that Jesus has already returned. And Paul is saying they're among those who have this gangrenous effect, meaning they're not all the problem, but they're part of the problem. And what they were doing is they were reducing the resurrection down to a sort of a, a metaphor. So there wasn't an actual real resurrection that you were to hope in, but it was this uh, kind of transcendent spiritual experience that you could have in this life. And this is an industry, by the way, in, uh, in Christian publishing and music of creating uh, these kind of mountaintop worship experiences, which are not inherently bad. Don't hear me say that. But at the same time, what I do want to say is the idea that the greatest thing I could have happen in my life is this, is this transcendent spiritual experience now diminishes the impact and the effect of the real resurrection. Christianity is built on a real resurrection. It's built on real restoration to God in every way. And Hymenaeus and Philetus were coming in and they were upsetting people with this kind of innovative, super spiritual sounding spin on the gospel. And this still happens. People come along all the time with new versions of Christianity, a kinder, gentler God, right? That, well, a loving God would never do blah, 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 right? Even though Orthodox Christianity from the foundation of the world has said, actually, even in the creeds, this is what we believe, well, you, know, you don't really believe that because it just doesn't make sense, right? That God would do that. C.S. Lewis said... Uh, he called this, this, this idea generational snobbery. And generational snobbery is assuming that one's present generation is the most enlightened generation and thus the best generation, leaving us then preoccupied with innovation rather than returning to the old roads, the old paths of studying scripture and praying and engaging in corporate worship and acts of service. Instead, what we're trying to do is innovate, 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 redraw the lines, reimagine uh, the gospel. And there are a couple of things that drive this intellectual snobbery, this generational snobbery that Lewis talks about. Uh, the first is laziness. That often when we say we need something better, it isn't because we've tried the old way and found it lacking. It's because we found that the old way takes some effort to engage with. Uh, and, and so it, it takes time and it takes effort and what we really want is something easier. We want something that really kind of fits our personality as it is right now rather than challenging us to become more like Christ. G.K. Chesterton famously said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And so we can say instead of the 
walking a hard road, I'll just reimagine Christianity as, as something that already kind of resembles what I'm doing anyway. And that's a form of laziness. And the second uh, thing that drives the generational snobbery is pride. And that is this idea that we want to be known for championing true spirituality, a genuine spirituality, something that's more genuine than those who have gone before us, that I see what the generations before me couldn't see. And if folks would just listen to me, or we would all just agree on this path over here that's, that's an easier path to walk, then the church in general would be a better place. The problem with that is there's nothing to unify around that other than an idea or a personality that's at best flawed or worse driven by a desire to replace Christ as the head of the church. That's what's happening here in Timothy. It's heavy. Sometimes the things we debate and the things we quarrel over are patently false doctrines. And we need to contend for truth. Other times, it may be more subtle than that, like just an, an angle, a, a trendy angle, something clever, a new way of, of spinning Christianity. And, and what Paul is saying is don't prize invention over orthodoxy. Stick to the old roads. Rather than trying to reinvent Christianity, we must serve each other in community, striving to be faithful to the Lord and to his word. Which comes to the last one, the last thing that tears down, and this is really kind of an umbrella over all the rest of it, and that is the glorification of self. Paul, this is verses three, uh, chapter three, verses one to nine. It's a stretch, it's a doozy of a passage of scripture. Paul is warning against behaviors and mindsets that are corrosive to community. And he's telling Timothy, people who behave in this way, avoid them. Now Paul is warning, Paul's warning here is not, we have to be clear on this. Paul, Paul's warning is not to avoid everyone who commits sins that appear on this list. Uh, because that would be all of us. And you, you'll have a hard time avoiding yourself. You'll have a hard time avoiding your family. Um, but what he is doing, and this, this appears several times in Scripture when, when, when Scripture says these people have nothing to do with them, it's this. It's people who do things like this with unrepentant impunity while still professing faith in Jesus. I'm living contrary, openly contrary to God's word. I refuse to repent and I'm still claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He says this is, this is an example of having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. People who live this way, what they want is they want to see themselves as above God's law. Wanting what they want, seeking to get it regardless of the cost. The image he gives here, which is an image you have to understand, is, is specific to something that must have been happening in the life of Timothy's church, is the image of creeping into households and capturing weak women. That there's dark things happening here, all while claiming to belong to Christ. And Paul is saying to Timothy, they're frauds. They're frauds and their folly will be made plain, he says in verse 9, avoid them. It's heavy, isn't it? 
But he gives this description of what self-glorification and the pursuit of self-glorification looks like in verses two through seven. And I want to read that list again because these are the sins of wanting to be the most important person in the room. Just listen to this list one more time. Eric read it. I'm going to read it again. Uh, People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That's a throwback, isn't it? And there it is. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture, creep, uh, ca- capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions. This last line is astounding. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. These are the sins of wanting to be the most important person in the room, the person who says, I will never set aside my right to myself in order to accommodate somebody else's need. And Paul is clear. He says the pursuit of self-glorification comes at the expense of healthy community. If you want to suck the life out of fellowship, then just presume that you have the right to satisfy every appetite that comes your way whenever you want. Presume you don't need to serve anybody else, but that they should be serving you. Just be a taker. Just take With the glory of self, you can draw a straight line back to Adam and Eve in the garden when the serpent told them that the problem was that they weren't on the same level with God and they should really try to pursue that. Listen, this is heavy stuff, and I know we've been on the negative side of contending against uh, opposing what tears down, but it's important for us to see that because I think we can be lulled into a false sense of security that... The church is just a place where everything goes and we're all just trying to be good people and we're all just trying to get along and we just what keeps us in common is we, we listen to sermons together and we sing songs together. And that's not the point. The point of the church is that we're growing together as the bride of Christ and that we're an outpost that exists in the world to be witnesses for him, loving our neighbor, serving our neighbor. And so we're called to this. So next week, we're going to look at the positive instructions of this text. But today, I I do want us to notice how at their core, the underlying problems are primarily self-serving and self-centeredness is corrosive to relational health. And I pray that the Lord would mark this church with a humble devotion to Christ that would make us very open-handed with the non-essentials and very committed to the essentials and that humility would set the tone for who we are as a community and that our devotion to Christ would establish uh, the bonds of our doctrinal fidelity to God's word and that he would form us in that way. So I'm gonna pray for us now. Lord, I pray that you would do these things, um, that you would even as we started at the beginning of the sermon, that you would give us the courage to acknowledge 
uh, places where we um, uh, favor ourselves over others, where we um, are committed to the glorification of ourselves, our ideas, our intellect, our achievements, our accomplishments. Uh, that you would help us to see the heart behind that, uh, the things that we're afraid of, the things that we're trying to hold on to, uh, the things that we're trying to establish uh, to give ourselves a, a foothold in this world, Lord. I pray that you would help us to see that and to remind us that our identity and our, our, our footing is, is resting on the foundation of Christ uh, and that we are called as, as his people uh, to love and to walk with him. Uh, Lord, forgive us for the ways we have been complicit and participated in um, corrosive ways of relating uh, to one another in the church. Help us to, uh, to learn and to grow uh, through that. And uh, Lord, we, we look forward uh, even to next week when we will talk about contending for what builds up. Um, and we thank you for the beauty of your word and for the practicality of this letter. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.